This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shoddick. Sorry I wasn't here for the back holiday. I was just spending some quality time with my tractor. Now, coming up on today's episode, one of the big political stories by the end of the week could well be Northern Ireland. If, she, if, as the poll suggests, Sinn Féin beat the DUP and lay claim to the role of First Minister, it could turn Northern Ireland politics on its head. What does it mean for the future of the Union? What does it mean for the future of the Northern Ireland Protocol? And even for the possibility of a united Ireland. That's what we've been discussing and our big thing that's coming up on the podcast. Before that, as ever, we kick off with our Economist panel. And on a Tuesday, it's... The Janus of Journalism and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yes, 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 yes. It's time for Finkelvich. Joined this morning by Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. I've got actually got an idea for a political uh, a political musical. I thought of one based on the federal assumption of state debt and the creation of the Constitution. I thought I'd call it Hamilton. <laughs> very good. Very good. Your 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 known um, uh, creativity uh, coming in there, Daddy. Uh, David Aronovich, good morning. Good morning. Has anybody come up with this one yet? Woklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Come on, that is, <laughs> that good. is, that is uh, good. That's much better than Danny's. Uh, well done. That might be that might be the best we get all morning. Woke, if you could do better than Woke, Oklahoma, get in touch in the usual, uh, in the usual ways. Right. Um, let's talk about. Uh, we don't need to get bogged down in uh, what Neil Parrish was exactly doing because now he's announced that he's going. Although, if, he's, if you want to share your intimate knowledge of tractors, feel free. Um, there's, as a result, lots of pressure on the Conservatives. To, something must be done. That something is a recommitment to its existing commitment to move towards having 50-50 men and women on the uh, Tory benches in the House of Commons. But the uh, the party's always been against having all women shortlists. In fact, uh, Michelle Donnellan, the university's minister, uh, is describing the idea as demeaning. So I suppose, Danny, there's, there's two questions here. How do the Tories... Well, I suppose there's several questions. Do the Tories need more women? How do they do it? And if not all women shortlist, then what? 
Well, yes, uh, the Conservative Party does need more women. And then there's this question of whether or not um, it is sort of ethically right to discriminate on the basis of sex, even when you're discriminating uh, in favour of a discriminated against group, uh, which is uh, which is women. Um, and uh, the extraordinary thing is that the Conservative Party, in many ways, um, supposed to be the pragmatic party, gets itself... Um, tangled up in um, in what is really an ideological position. Um, in the end, it seems that uh, positive discrimination of this kind, of trying to ensure that you have enough women candidates, is literally the only way of uh, offsetting negative discrimination in the selection of women candidates. It's the only thing that's worked. Uh, it's the only thing I think that will work for some time to come while our society begins to adjust itself um, to to um, to the new to a sort of new uh, reality and in relationships between uh, sexes and genders and it uh, needs to understand that as a party and therefore I think uh, positive discrimination is the only way of achieving that you know the, the, the problem is if you if you were to select uh, in large groups you know you had four or five uh, constituencies selecting their candidates at once you'd be able then to get um you know two women and two men in each uh group it wouldn't be very difficult to do and i think most uh, constituencies would agree to that but because you select one at a time you end up getting men everywhere um and that just isn't tenable the conservative party can't represent the whole of the population if its population of mps doesn't uh, so I, I long ago you know when i was in my 20s and when you're particularly impressed by a pure lines and uh <laughs> you know and you're particularly impressed by uh, ideological arguments about things uh, you feel differently but um i've now watched what works and i've shifted my position on that quite a long time ago David, where do you stand on this question? I have to say, it's a slightly bizarre response to the Neil Parrish thing to say that you need more women in Parliament because the answer to the Neil Parrish thing is that you have no men in Parliament. So you should literally have all women shortlist except for every single seat. It's the only way in which you can kind of guarantee it. I mean, you know, for some reason, women tend not to be looking for tractors and finding porn. I don't know why this, maybe it's just a lack of imagination on their part, a lack of, a lack of, uh, a, a, a lack of uh, imaginative capacity. Um, but taking uh, Danny's serious point, the uh, all women shortlist work for Labour. I mean, there's, you know, uh, it, uh, whether it worked electorally is another matter, agree, but it certainly vastly increased the numbers of women on the Labour benches. The Liberal Democrats didn't do it, and at, uh, at one stage, Liberal Democrats were absolutely the worst represented by women. They've done rather better more recently, um, putting up more women in by-elections and so on. Um, so pragmatically, all women shortlists do work, and what you could see them is as a kind of... A, uh, if you like a pump primer really which is you don't have to do it forever but you do it so that you overcome the resistance which there is and the kind of tendency which there is particularly for conservative associations to choose men on, uh, uh, on an individual basis um, and then you know maybe 10-15 years down the line you find it unnecessary what I do think is quite <laughs> possible under the circumstances given the way in which gender discussions are going etc is that under those circumstances you might find some very interesting sudden professions of gender changes happening 
Um, and I would look out for that one. I wouldn't have said that 10 years ago, but I think that becomes increasingly possible. Well, I think it's something I mean, I, I've never taken that whole idea that people I think being trans is so incredibly difficult I don't think people would do that but anyway that's 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 a whole different debate we don't want to get into um not not right now we can get do it another time perhaps but um I think that uh, because there's such a strong um negative uh, bias against women uh it it turns out you have to do a lot of work to ensure that you're properly representative. I don't think it would have made any difference to, as David correctly said, I think it would have made no difference to the Neil uh, Parish uh, incident. Um, but um, I don't. But I do think it would be a good thing in itself. I, don't, I, I suppose. I mean, the, the, the slight problem with with uh, stories like this is that people are very cross about what Neil Parish was doing, and they think the solution just happens to be the thing that they've been banging on about for a long time. So somehow we've got into uh, MPs shouldn't be employing their own staff, says Lindsay Hoyle. Other people saying we should shut the bars. Neither, I mean, you can have a debate about both of those questions, but neither of them played any role, as far as I could tell, in um, uh, Neil Parrish's fat-fingered well, internet search. Of course, neither. No, 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 but it wasn't. It, it wasn't so obviously simply fat-fingered, but uh, fat-headed it certainly was. And, um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, the... the the truth is that um, none of these are solutions to that particular incident, um, you know, which is something that he did and has correctly, um, you know, received the consequences of. Um, but I, so I think what we should just do is say, well, as they've come up on the political agenda, because now we're uh, considering this whole question, are they a good idea? Uh, and I think I'm not sure that I think it's a good idea for people not to be able to employ their own staff, um, because I think it would undermine the whole question of the independence of members of parliament but i you know but i do think there are big questions about um the bars and drinking in uh parliament um but uh, i'm a little bit biased because i don't drink at all so maybe other people feel differently about no, it but I, I, it's all it's it's all part of the I, I to me it's all part of the same kind of incredible uh, archaic nature of parliament and the way we keep it we we insist on being in a building which is entirely unfit for purpose we don't allow the obvious things like electronic voting which requires extraordinary unnecessary exertions by MPs in order to vote uh, and I don't know Dan whether you now have uh, electronic voting in the Lords or not um, um. We've had for funny. It's been we've had it. We're now moving to a system whereby there's electronic pass reading, but you have to go through. So that there there are pluses and minuses to electronic voting, by the way, because obviously that is related. I, I think that is related a bit to Neil Parish. I think that probably the kind of atmospherics that people don't get is there's an awful lot of hanging around in Parliament um, quite late outside work hours where people are sitting there reading things or doing things and sort of feel they no longer need to work because they've been working all day and it's now you know nine o'clock at night or whatever that sort of thing is probably um bundled up with the fact that people uh drink or behave in a in a grotesquely unprofessional uh manner and that probably is related to parliament's working methods so i think you're right david uh, the problem with electronic voting is you can then get into a situation where people are voting while um you know not paying any you know not being sort of in the building working in any way or rela relating to their parliamentary task and barely aware of there is a bill going through parliament but I'm i suppose sure the, I the problem with that danny is the um, that. the vast majority of votes that happen in the house of commons the people voting have no idea what they're voting on 
it's a well, okay, but that's a, not, I'm not sure that's a trend we want to particularly encourage. I, you know, I mean, look, it, 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 it's, it's, it's no, I mean, look, it is, it's without any question, it's obviously convenient um, for members of parliament to be able to vote without having to physically uh, attend. Yeah. I think you would quite lose quite a lot. So, one example of um, is that um, voting lobbies are one of the few places where ministers encounter backbench members of parliament. If you well, remove that, you wouldn't, you'd, you'd massively reduce that. Um, uh, that. So, so what I'm saying is, look, I don't, I, I don't, I actually think, funnily enough, this probably is related to the Neil Parish, unlike the other things, it is related to what happened with Neil Parish. I'm not sure. I think you'd lose some things as well as gaining. So it's, it's a plus as a minus. Thing, I, I, okay, okay. I think one of the things that you would gain, Danny, I see, take your point, is actually moving into the 20th century, let alone the 21st century. I mean, the situation where, and it is mostly mothers with young children, have to actually be present to vote in person on three-line whips, etc., when they could actually see their kids a little bit more and make uh, and, and do those votes. It's just it's just archaic. It's it, it's out of time. And if we're talking about well, the most of those votes take place during the day, so it's not it's only a, a some minority. But I do I do get it. I mean, I've I've noticed it. You know, I've said it sometimes with the laws where they're voting incredibly late at night, and I'm thinking, well, that's because we didn't start until three o'clock in the afternoon. But on the other hand. Um, that allows people, you know, in the Lords, it makes more sense because people are not doing that as a job. So that's different. Uh, but I know I, I think that I think Parliament, I think that definitely the Neil Parish incident is related to us to some extent to an archaic atmosphere in which people are doing a lot of voting, which involves hanging around a lot. And I think that is unquestionably Related well, to, I mean, it doesn't, Danny, it's not an excuse my, for my it. My counterpoint, as someone who's done a certain amount of hanging around Parliament in the past, <laughs> is um, the implication that every man, uh, when left with uh, 10 minutes on his hands uh, between um, voting, g- goes on a porn website. Or, no, no, that's, or, that's not the or, or anyone who goes into a bar in Westminster automatically starts sexually harassing anyone they can lay their hands no. on. No, but it's no, but we correctly, um, you know, look in journalism, as everyone knows, um, the in the 19, you know, before certainly before the 1950s and 60s, people were quite often drunk in the office. If you came in drunk in the Times once now, it would be like a massive disciplinary issue. And it's correct that, uh, that, that we've moved to that, right? Um, it's not a way of working. And so, no one's arguing that um, because people are hanging around, they, you know, it, it excuses it or, um, you know, entirely explains what was bizarre behaviour. But unquestionably, if you have a working life in which quite a lot of the day ends up being outside professional hours when people have done full working days and people are hanging around doing all the things that they do when they hang around which includes getting drunk by the way and then obviously as we've now noticed also includes people uh, accessing porn right you're you're creating and david's right a a a kind of a, an unprofessional atmosphere in a professional setting. So I do think that is related a bit, um, much more than I think the other issues we were discussing. Except, yeah. except, and this is my final point, Parliament in the Palace of Westminster is not a professional setting. It's a ludicrous setting. That's what I'm it's, saying. I'm, yeah, I'm saying yeah, it's, a professional, it's a professional piece of work, um, in a, but, but it's sort of organised in a kind of unprofessional way. And I guess I think there's a there's a point about, you know, I'm sort of coming round to that view a bit that um, isn't a possibly isn't an appropriate setting. 
Well, we, we shall move on. We shall move on in a moment. We'll talk uh, about Partygate, Beer Gates, and uh, we'll try and uh, we'll try and um, discuss uh, what's been coming out of America as well on the latest on Roe versus Wade. This is Matt Jolly bringing you Finkelfitch on Times Radio with Visa, supporting small businesses on their digital journey. Cathy Newman on Times Radio with Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Build your wealth with confidence. This Friday afternoon from 4, join Cathy Newman for a perfectly balanced portfolio of up-to-the-minute news, unrivaled analysis and expert opinion. Plus, every week on The Ladder, I speak to women from the political sphere and beyond about how they've overcome different challenges to rise to the very top of their professions. Cathy Newman at Drive on Times Radio with Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Build your wealth with confidence. Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Very good morning to you, Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Still joined by Finkelvich, Daniel Finkelstein and David Ivanovich. Now, we've spent so much time over recent weeks discussing Partygate and what Boris Johnson was getting up to in Downing Street. Beergate refuses to go away, though. <laughs> Boris Johnson having a bit... Uh, not Boris Johnson, the other one. Keir Starmer having a beer and a curry in Durham in April 2020. Was that against the rules? No, April 2021, uh, for the sake of clarity. Um, I don't know whether it, it, you two both stand on this. Part of me sort of feels like if, I mean, as much as we all know about the the details of what went on, if it was a, if the police felt it was necessary to fine Boris Johnson for having a cake, I, it's tricky to see why the same shouldn't have been applied well, to Keir Starmer. Danny? Is it, there are a number of things. First of all, Tories shouldn't think that whatever we discuss, decide about Keir Starmer has any impact on what Boris Johnson did, which is entirely separate. Uh, it doesn't excuse what he did. It doesn't make any difference what the police judge. It doesn't mean that his conduct in Downing Street was acceptable. It's entirely separate matter. Secondly, it isn't the same what with what Keir Starmer did. What the problem with uh, with um, what um, uh, was done over the cake and various other incidents in Downing Street is someone sent out an invitation asking people to gather for a social event. Whereas what Keir Starmer did, it's quite obvious, was have a meal while they were organised in a working environment. I'm not surprised the police would judge one of those incidents as being against the law and the other not as being not against the law. I'd be very surprised if it turned out that what Keir Starmer did um, was against our understanding of what the law was. Um, so I'm, I'm not particularly taken by you say that it's an issue that hasn't gone away i think it's an issue that hasn't arrived and yeah. everyone and, and the conservatives and 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 to be fair also journalism journalists like ourselves it's it's a great talking point um uh, but i you know i and i and i i think politically i can see why the conservative party is trying to make this point um but personally i'm not taken by it david yeah, I, I'm afraid I agree with every word of that. I mean, we always have to be careful for biases and so on. And so because I tend to favour Labour more than I would in an ordinary non-Corbyn year, than I'd favour the Conservatives, I have to ask myself very carefully, would you be saying the same thing in reverse? Uh, but I agree with I, I agree with Danny. I think there's really not much to see here. Um, this morning on the Today programme, um, uh, he was having difficulty answering the question, had the police been in touch with him since the last set of complaints by Conservative MPs? And I, uh, and I was speculating, and we, and we had an email exchange about this, Matt, about why, why that might be the case. And I think it was pretty obvious, I, was pretty, I think it was pretty obvious because he simply didn't want it to be a headline, yeah. um, whichever, whichever the answer was. And I think one of the besetting sins of a certain kind of journalism, particularly since the advent of Twitter, is this kind of belief that everything is everything else. 
<laughs> you know, that is, you know, that it's all essentially the same thing. Once you have it in a, a something a bit like it, then the next thing that comes along that has and is the same words in it is the same thing as the thing before, and it's just not true. This is a different, and Danny's quite right. He's, uh, this is a different thing, and it is. I think I, I honestly think this time it's not worthy of our time. I see. I, I've been. Yeah, I've the, been the, through the. the contor- I've been party. through those contortions, and I, I, having banged on so much about Partygate, and yes. slightly dismissed what Keir Starmer was doing. If there were pictures of Boris Johnson drinking beer at the end of a day and ordering in curry, that would become part of the Partygate no, narrative. Though. So this is, as, as, as in fact, a lot of Conservatives correctly point out to me, friends of mine, um, the Times ran a story in which, with the cake being blown out, which um, uh, nobody pointed out that this might be against the rules, right? And it was, it was at that point very similar to the, what was happening with yeah. Keir Starmer. What happened in 10 Downing Street, however, wasn't just that. It wasn't just one incident in which, in which um, they, they were... Um, having a meal uh, in the in a meeting, for example, it was a number of incidents in which you know on some occasions people employed actually karaoke machines, and uh, there were a series of social events yeah, yeah, yeah. of which this actually was one of the last to be revealed, um, and happens to have caught everyone's attention. Right? Well, mainly, um, mainly because uh, to the my poli- mind, the, least the police se- are, is the, it's still the only one that the police have fined about, well, and it seems like the least bad of all of what's gone on. They so. find people for a number of other events. It's just they haven't followed find the prime minister although he is still the prime minister in my opinion and responsible uh, for the members of staff so it was a pattern of behavior but all well, people can make their own judgment everyone yeah. who's listening to this is an adult they can see this what 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 Keir Starmer did uh, in having a meal with his staff does not seem to me to be the same as the allegations made against people in 10 Downing Street uh, I don't think if it had in fact not only that it was known about at the time and people did not make a fuss about it and um the reason they didn't was it wasn't part of a part of of a pattern of deliberately organizing social gatherings and that's that's what partygate is so my view is it is not the same um and um even if but this is a crucial point even if it were the same and Keir, Keir Starmer were guilty of the same thing that Boris Johnson was guilty of it wouldn't make what Boris Johnson was guilty of correct right it wouldn't make it right or acceptable and and it's very important that people do not try to make the argument that yeah. it is acceptable because Keir Starmer did the same thing that thus it's all hypocrisy and it doesn't work well, most of us uh certainly did not organize the parties that were organized in 10 Downing Street we took a great care not to do that uh, and it's the reason why people are very angry about it and I think correctly and reasonably angry about it and what Keir Starmer did or didn't do in my view did not do but even if you think he did do is irrelevant to that judgment yeah let's just move on finally we've got a couple of minutes left uh, David I know you wanted to reflect on uh, what is what is looks like the direction of uh, the United States and the Supreme Court looking to overturn Roe v Wade uh, why should people in Britain Worry about that? Um, well, uh, they should only worry about it insofar as I, the the bigger point, and in a way, it's unfortunate to come to it last. Although I can see why we have, um, is this question of how courts enshrine human rights and adjudicate on human rights. It it will come into effect if we were to abolish the Human Rights Act um, and so on, which I don't think we will, uh, and try to recodify and so on, what actually human rights consist of and so on. Uh, um, uh, 
it, it, I've seen the argument already by somebody late of the Times Parish this morning that this is a good decision because it means the courts get out of political decisions. So I quickly sent him a, a Twitter saying, would you say the same thing about segregation? Um, uh, no reply as yet. Um, <laughs> but it, uh, no, but it, but it really does come down to a kind of a, 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 what is a fundamental dilemma. There are arguments for saying that this will force people who think that women should have those rights to make their arguments politically state by state. Daniel Finkelstein and David Wanovich then, of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesweddbox. Up next, our big thing is an in-depth look at the changing face of Northern Irish politics. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. Forget Partygate and Beergate and Farmgate and all the other gates which apparently we're supposed to worry about in British politics. This could be the biggest political story by the end of this week. We could have a political party ruling Northern Ireland which is committed to Northern Ireland joining the rest of Ireland. Now, with a good Friday agreement brought peace to Northern Ireland, it was back in the 1990s, it was agreed the first minister would be drawn from the biggest party and the deputy first minister from the second biggest party. One unionist, one nationalist. And since then, the DUP, which supports Northern Ireland remaining part of the UK, has held that top job of first minister. In fact, for the past 101 years of Northern Ireland being in existence, a pro-union party has won every election. But could that be about to change this week? Polls show that Sinn Féin could win the most seats in the Northern Ireland Assembly. That's Sinn Féin, which supports a united Ireland, opposes the royal family, and historically had links to the IRA. So what does this mean for the future of Northern Ireland? What does it mean for the Northern Ireland Assembly? Will it even sit if the DUP refuse to take their place alongside uh, Sinn Féin? We'll take a look at the very latest polls and find out what voters are thinking and the areas we should be keeping an eye on as the results start to come in. First of all, let's speak to uh, Gwanya McKinney, who is news editor of our sister station, New 105 in Belfast, to get the broad picture. Morning, Gwanya. Morning. So we're down with only about 48 hours, less than that now, until polls open in Northern Ireland. 
Um, how significant is this week, do you think, in the in the history of Northern Ireland? Oh, massively so. I mean, um, polls have been coming in pretty much since the election uh, was, was announced. Um, but today, this morning, one came out which showed that um, Alliance, which is one of our unaligned parties, you know, it doesn't identify as unionist or nationalists. It's actually neck and neck with the DUP at 18.2% of the votes. While, as you explained there, Sinn Féin are, they're sort of consistently being shown to have 26%. Um, there's obviously a, a margin for error there, but uh, all these polls are showing that Sinn Féin is pretty likely to become our, our biggest party. Um, I suppose, though, the broader picture is that what people here, you know, what do they care about? What are they voting for? Um, this same poll this morning showed that above all the constitutional issues, health and the economy are voters' greatest priority. You know, 37% of people saw health as top. Um, our cancer waiting times consistently have been the worst in the UK. I think it's probably a UK-wide thing that it's a struggle to get a GP appointment, but in Northern Ireland, it's it really is difficult. Uh, yesterday, we had the news that a practice in a small village will only be open two half days a week. Um, economy, the mo next most important issue, we've got a cost of living crisis and Northern Ireland depends on oil more than any other UK region. So I think the thing is, a lot of the parties are focusing on the cost of living crisis in efforts to, to win voters over. You know, you spoke there about Sinn Féin um, and their calls for Irish unification. For this campaign, they're actually concentrating on, you know, poverty and cost of living. Um, there was a leaders debate on Sunday and the party leader, Michelle O'Neill, was called out because um, there were reports that Sinn Féin had sought to meet with the political wing of the new IRA to discuss Irish unification. So that could be something that anyone on the fence watching that debate may be tempted to, you know, they could have been considering voting for Sinn Féin. Something like that could con could convince them to stay with, you know, the slightly more um, central SDLP. The DUP, meanwhile, its focus has consistently been the protocol and uh, they've dismissed the polls pretty much and said that <laughs> on the doorstops, people are telling them they don't want to see Sinn Féin win. And I was going to say, I suppose that the, the, the obvious parallel for people sort of following uh, politics is, is what we've seen in Scotland. Obviously, I mean, clearly, uh, Scottish independence is, you know, a, a, a much higher profile and, you know, there's higher support for it. But the way that you some might argue uh, that the SNP ahead of elections will say one thing that's about, you know, cost of living or domestic policies or whatever, and then afterwards uh, claim the result as a mandate for something else. The, the, yeah, and so trying to sort of... Do you think that's slightly what might happen with Sinn Féin, that what they're, they're focusing on the domestic right now because they're trying to broaden their appeal and, and win as much support as possible? But if they do come out on top uh, on uh, Thursday night, Friday morning... Does that become, do they use that as a claim to, to start talking more about Irish reunification, do you think? Well, Sinn Féin have never made a secret of the fact that they want a, a border poll. Um, and it is obviously a lot of their voters, you know, tribal voting here is still massive. Um, so a lot of people who, have, who will vote Sinn Féin have historically always voted Sinn Féin. And it will be because they maybe want Irish unification, they want a border poll. The thing is, though, 
you know, if Sinn Féin get the first minister seat, they still have to work with the deputy first minister. Those roles are completely equal. Um, it's more about the optics of holding the seat rather than the actual power. So, you know, Sinn Féin can call for a border poll, but they will need some sort of backing from the, the Assembly as a whole to do that. And what have the DUP said about the prospect of uh, Sinn Féin uh, taking the first minister seat? Oh, they, they haven't definitively said that they won't return um, to Stormont. Uh, Jeffrey Donaldson, the party leader, he has said he's a Democrat. So uh, take from that what you will. You'd assume that they, they would sit um, in, in, in the Assembly. However, we have to remember the DUP collapsed the executive because they're still calling for the protocol, the Northern Ireland protocol, as a result of Brexit. They still want it to be rid of. So you've got to ask what's going to happen there. You know, are we going to have a Sinn Féin first minister and also have the protocol issue for the DUP? Both those things combined, it might mean that after, you know, Saturday morning, we still don't have a, a functioning executive here. Which, whatever you think of the 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 big questions of uh, you know Irish reunification for day to day lives, you stuff you were talking mm-hmm. about, you know, cost of living, you know, getting f- things in and out, you know, if you're trying to trade, yeah. get a GP appointment, not having an assembly is probably the worst of all outcomes. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, we, you know, we didn't have an assembly for three years, and nothing could move forward here. We yeah. were essentially stuck in limbo. Gornia, it's really good to speak to you. I suspect we'll speak to you during the week and beyond. Uh, Gornia McKinney from our sister station, U105 in Belfast. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, let's um, let's dig around in the polls and the trends and what's actually happening under the surface in Northern Ireland. Bill White is the managing director of the polling and research company Lucid Talk, which carries out polling in, in Northern Ireland. Bill, what did your, your last poll uh, say about what, what you think might happen on Thursday? Well, but our last poll is very similar or similar to the this recent poll that Bronium referred to um, if, uh, that was run by one of the local newspapers here, the Irish News. We do polling for the uh, one of the other dailies here, the Belfast Telegraph. And yes, we show Sinn Féin ahead, 26%, uh, DUP and 20%. Uh, so again, that's same of all the polls. It's showing a reasonable difference between Sinn Féin and the DUP. Um, compared to this other poll, we have alliance at 14%, not as high and, and level pegging with the DUP, a bit behind the DUP, with the Ulster Unionist Party, the more moderate, if you like, Unionist Party at 14%. The SDLP, the same score as the other polls, 10%. The traditional Unionist voice, this is the party that really is stirring up the pot in this election in that they are the if you like, the right-wing Unionist Party, very anti the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, very anti-Stormont, if you like, in the local institutions. They don't believe they they should work this way in terms of having a joint First Minister, Deputy First Minister. They believe that the Stormont institutions in Northern Ireland, the local government institutions here in Northern Ireland, should be based in voluntary coalition. They're at 9%. Now, it has to be taken, the last election they were polling at 3%. In our polls, they're now at 9%. And that's taking 90% of that that uplift from 3% to 9% comes from the Democratic Unionist Party. So the Democratic Unionist Party have been drawn down because of their votes slipping away to the TUV. Green Party on 3% and the other parties on 2%, uh, people for profit, a left-wing party and 2% and the others independents and 2%. So in essence, actually, Sinn Féin actually, funnily enough, haven't advanced 
from the last... <laughs> no, they've just held, they've managed to hold they've on. They've just held it. their own, exactly. And I mean, it's just like a horse race. If a horse just keeps running steadily, if the other horses behind you start falling over each other and slowing down, then you look as if you're well ahead. And uh, it's, it's the drop in the DUP vote um, that actually is showing this gap between Sinn Féin and the DUP. But I mean, all the polls are showing that Sinn Féin should get the highest vote share and therefore, because it's a proportional representation system, it, they'll probably get the largest number of seats, which, as Gronio said, means they're entitled to this symbolic. It is a symbolic post because there's a first minister, deputy first minister joint operation. But it is incredibly symbolic in, a, you know, in a country like Northern Ireland, where symbolism yeah. doesn't matter so, does matter so much. Um, yeah. it, just it, for people who are not familiar with uh, the, you know, the, the different parties in Northern Ireland, is it mm-hmm. is it reasonable to describe the TUV as the sort of UKIP to the Conservatives? That they're sort of on the on the right flank of the of the DUP, pulling pulling you know pulling away some of their voters, and actually therefore pulling the party to the right a bit as well. Uh, that, that's exactly what I wish I thought of that. That's an excellent analogy. Yes, <laughs> very 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 like that indeed. And. Uh, uh, probably with a bit more support, uh, our polls are showing them with a bit more support. But they're eating. I mean, they, they, their leader is a former DUP, uh, senior DUP politician, and he, uh, Jim Allister, is now leading the DUV. Uh, so yes, indeed, that's a very good way of describing it. Yes, indeed. And um, is there? We were talking about um, with Gornia the sort of domestic issues that, that come up in impulse. Is there any? Um, a crossover between like DUP to Sinn Féin switches or is that just so mad uh that um actually what you know maybe they're going you know do, is it the Sinn Féin voters DUP voters go to the alliance as a sort of halfway house what where is the churn you're saying the DUP uh, uh, some DUP vote is going to the TUV is there any other um interesting trends going on between the parties that are worth looking at well, yeah, Northern Ireland basically is uh, two separate, if you like, two separate countries, if you like, and the votes stay within both camps. The unionist camp, the votes churn around within it. They move, as you've, we've just said, over to the TUV. There's a swing to them. Sometimes there's a swing to the UUP and there's a swing away from the DUP, but it's all within that camp. Likewise, the nationalist Republican camp, those who believe in a United Ireland, uh, who are about 40% of the population, their two main parties are Sinn Féin, and the Social Democratic and Labour Party, the SDLP, who are the more moderate wing uh, of the nationalism. You know, they want to sort of make Northern Ireland work, but they have a long-term aspiration of a united Ireland. And the votes turn between those two parties. In the middle, yes, you have the Alliance and to a lesser extent the Green Party. And they do eat into the Sinn Féin and the, particularly the SDLP vote on the nationalist side. And they also get swing voters from the Ulster Unionist Party and the moderate wing, if you like, of unionism on the unionist side. And they have had a bit of a surge in the middle uh, coming through, you know, getting votes from the unionist side, the moderate unionists, and getting votes from the moderate nationalist side, you know, with a, with a focus of trying to make Northern Ireland work and let's make Northern Ireland work and let's bring people together. And they're polling, you know, in mid-teens in our polls. But they, they're the ones who get the votes from each camp. There's no real crossover, no to, to be yeah. First point, there's no crossover from Sinn Féin to the DUP or the SDLP. A little bit of SDLP to the UUP and back again. But you're talking very low numbers of votes in that case. So that's that's the way the system sort of operates in Northern Ireland. Well, Bill, we'll find out um, how accurate your poll was. In, we really haven't got long to wait now. Yeah, um, uh, but it'll be fascinating to see what happens. And then, and then the real politics starts. Bill White, Managing Director of Lucid Talk, polling company in Northern Ireland. Thanks very much for joining us. On Times Radio. Well, let's zoom out a bit now and get a slightly broader picture. Claire Rice is a research associate at the University of Liverpool. 
as part of the Beyond Unionism and Nationalism in Northern Ireland project. Morning, Claire. Good morning. Uh, we've also got on the line Peter Hayne, now Lord Hayne, former Northern Ireland Secretary from 2005 to 2007. Morning, Peter. Morning, Matt. Um, Claire, first of all, we can't really have a conversation uh, about what's happening in the Northern Ireland without discussing demographics that actually, and we, we await the results of the 2021 census, but lots of people uh, expect that it will show that there are now more Catholics than Protestants in Northern Ireland. And clearly that still plays a big part in politics. Yes, it absolutely does. And you just have to look at the, the narratives around this particular election to understand just the extent to which that, uh, that type of, of of division still permeates through Northern Irish politics. You know the the fear that um, that uh, Bill was referring to. You know when discussing the the first uh, and deputy first minister and indeed uh, your earlier contributor, um, the fact that they're exactly the same office. There's no difference between what either of those posts do, but that symbolic significance um, as to who holds the first uh, first minister position and the deputy first minister position. That's implicitly hinged on this um, this, this bipartite dynamic dynamic that we have in Northern Ireland, where it's still to a large extent centres around unionist parties and nationalist parties and indeed tied with that unionist, uh, the unionist community and uh, the nationalist community. Now, as was rightly alluded to, there is um, this, this movement within the centre ground. It's not quite clear at this stage how that will pan out uh, with this election here on Thursday. But certainly the expectation is that there will be an increase in the, the certainly the vote share and, and most likely the number of seats held by centre ground or, or non-aligned parties in the Northern Irish context. And that in itself presents a, a bit of a challenge, not only to, I guess, the understanding um, of that traditional dynamic within Northern Ireland of being a, a, a two-community or a two-group um, two uh, society. But actually, whenever you think on a more, funda- more fundamental level about the institutional design in Northern Ireland, it throws up a whole host of questions around how governance is, is done in Northern Ireland and how that happens. So it's, it's intrinsic to the most basic level in Northern Ireland, these, these wider questions about how people identify in, in those terms. Uh, Claire, your project is called Beyond Unionism and Nationalism. Uh, what proportion, we were talking about proportions of Catholics and Protestants, what proportion of, uh, of people, voters in Northern Ireland, do you think have moved beyond those distinctions and actually, as Gornia was talking about, are focusing on domestic policies? You know, are your hospitals any good? Are your schools any good? Uh, are you able to pay your bills? Um, well, that's something to be to be honest. I don't have the figures with me to hand, and the project is still quite in the, uh, an infancy stage. Probably within the next year or so, we'll certainly have more data um, to be able to contribute to, to that level of conversation. But if we're talking, or if we're looking at the question of the, the types of priorities that people have, you know, is that changing from the more constitutional type issues that would have dominated in the past towards more of the so-called bread and butter issues? You know, the, the healthcare, education, all of those sorts of things. Then there is a clear um, trend starting to emerge with that. Um, so there have been a few polls um, and surveys that have been done in the last few months with regard to the Northern Ireland Protocol and indeed there was one um, just published today, that uh, the one that uh, Bill was talking about which um, indicated that people still um, are in quite large numbers are not prioritising the protocol. There was one um, earlier this year around February time from Queen's University in Belfast which indicated that around um, a third of uh, participants in that survey didn't even list the protocol in its top three priorities um, indeed, the protocol was seen as um, in being included more frequently as one of the bottom three priorities for Northern Ireland. So certainly that, that does seem to, to point towards the, the issues that people prioritise in Northern Ireland not being as um, 
of intrinsically linked, let's say, to the constitutional questions. And I think very much in the wake of Brexit and currently in the in the context of the cost of living crisis that we're seeing, yeah. healthcare waiting lists in Northern Ireland also are a particular issue. These are the sorts of things really impacting people's everyday lives that are starting to prevail. Uh, Peter, I was asking if you would, if if back uh, 15 years ago when you were Northern Ireland Secretary, if you'd have been surprised if someone had told you that eventually Sinn Féin would be the biggest party instalment. Yes, I would have been. But as I started to say, Brexit has thrown a spanner in the works, particularly for the Democratic Unionist Party, which has been the largest unionist voice now for nearly 20 years, because it backed a very hard kind of Brexit where there was absolutely no alignment between um, the European Union in a way that Northern Ireland used to have, indeed the whole of the UK used to have, along with across the Irish border, the Republic of Ireland. Now, what that's done is meant that, um, remember, Northern Ireland voted against Brexit. It voted to stay by quite a clear majority. And the DUP, as the largest party, adopted a different point of view. And it has thrown unionists, particularly hard aligned unionist politics, into real difficulty because they see a threat to their union with the UK, which has been caused by the very Brexit that they voted for. And I think that's partly undermined um, confidence in unionism. And the other part of the picture is loyalist communities, the working class loyalist communities, if you like, the more um, even harder line unionist uh, views, that they feel their identity and their future is being threatened because there is a de facto border down the Irish Sea. Um, there had to be an external frontier of the Union of the European Union somewhere. It was either going to be toxically across the island of Ireland, and that was rejected, understandably so, but it's ended up um, uh, through the Irish Sea, and there haven't really been proper negotiations. So this is quite, I sit on the House of Lords Committee that looks into this in detail. It's quite technical, but it's easily resolvable and easily soluble, just with a bit of honest rolling up your sleeves and trust being, uh, being built between the EU and London, and, and that doesn't exist at the moment. So that has been a big factor. And of course, um, in, in terms of the election outcome, uh, the polls are saying what they're saying. But Northern Ireland's the Good Friday Agreement was built on the basis of inclusive government, where you end up sharing power with your sometimes bitter opponents. As remember, memorably, we managed to achieve when I was Secretary of State, Ian Paisley Senior, sharing power with Martin McGuinness, bitter blood, old and old blood enemies. And that worked more or less for 10 years, and then it fell apart um, for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. So we are in a crisis of power-sharing government uh, with a lot of unionists saying they will not accept and they will not allow Sinn Féin, even if they become the largest party, to be the first minister. And that then goes against the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement, and that causes will cause all sorts of um firecrackers to go off constitutionally. I don't, I don't mean uh, literally. Well, no, I was going to ask you that. What, what, what do you fear or hope might happen after we get the results Friday or, or Saturday? Because um, lots of people have, have warned that the impact of the protocol uh, c could lead to unrest. I mean, there's been some evidence of that, but not 
uh, as serious as some had suggested. Where do you think this goes? If, if for instance, the DUP refused to to sit alongside the uh, Sinn Féin in the, in, uh, as First Minister, or, or if they do, but they end up not agreeing anything and the protocol isn't changed, what is the long, you know, and the whole time, domestic politics being, um, un, uh, you know, domestic issues not being dealt with? Yeah. Um, what, what's yeah, the, what's really the, what, how do you break that? What, what's the, what's the, what's the, what do you fear might happen as a result of that? Well, I have quite a lot of friends uh, that I've developed over the years in, in the DUP, as I do in all of the parties. You know, you, I played like under Tony Blair an honest broker role, and sadly that hasn't happened, but that's another story in, in the last 10 to 12 years or so, where effectively it's been a one-sided approach from the London government towards Northern Ireland. Uh, and uh, and um, what I I worry about is that unless there's an agreement, and I think it's easily uh, negotiated, but there's been so much dogmatism from London that that hasn't happened. Unless there's an agreement to make the protocol work more smoothly, as I think it's quite easy to do and straightforward to do, um, it's going to continue to haunt us. And what I'd, I just wish that the, the, the British government under Boris Johnson had just rolled up their sleeves and done the deal that was there to to be done well before this election. Senior DUP figures, as I was saying, I still have friends, said, he said to me, look, they wish there'd just been a deal of some sort, even if they then attacked it, because it's, it's hung over the whole of Northern Ireland yeah. politics like a kind of haunting shadow, particularly for unionist politicians, even though majority of people say actually it's not their priority. Their priority would be the health service, for example, rather than the protocol. But, I, you know, what I think this what Thursday's result is bound to to, to throw up a a crisis at Stormont, uh, as there has been, because the DUP had pulled out of uh, being the first minister anyway before this election and is bound to do that. And what the government needs to do is just, you know, get its skids on and do a deal over the protocol and make sure that the bumps and, and problems that exist in trade from Great Britain to Northern Ireland are ironed out, as they're quite capable of being. Uh, and then I think it will make it easier for the DUP then to, to participate. Peter, pa Peter Hayne, Lord Hayne, thanks very much for joining us on Times Radio this morning. Uh, Northern Ireland Secretary from 2005 to 2007 under Tony Blair. Before that, we heard from Claire Rice uh, from the University of Liverpool and uh, their project Beyond Unionism and Nationalism in Northern Ireland. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.